Welcome to Sweet Bitter, where we explore the untold history of women and queer pirates. We're your host, Ellie Brigida. And Lisa Charlotte. This episode, we're talking about probably two of the most famous women pirates, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. But before we go into that, let's welcome our resident pirate expert, Elise, for a game of fact or fiction. First one for 2022. Let's go. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Elise. I'm excited to, I'm excited to hear y'all's guests today. I'm excited too. What do we got? What's our pirate fact or fiction for the day? Let's go. Okay. You know how you always hear about pirates looking for treasure like doubloons and pieces of eight? Are both or either of those real? A doubloon? I don't even think I've heard that word before. Do you, can you explain what it is or no? <laughs> I mean, it's it's what pirates talk about when they talk about their their treasure, and it's usually like coins, right? Like in a in a okay. treasure chest. Yeah, like a currency. Yeah. I feel like doubloons is fact, and it was just like a type of currency during the time where like the golden age of piracy. And so it would be like, okay, if you find your treasure, it's going to be in doubloons in the same way that like you could find like a bunch of quarters okay. or like uh, golden dollar bills. I don't know. But I think they're probably a bit more valuable than a quarter each. Well, maybe not in today's currency. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pieces of eight is that that also means doubloons. Like it's just a different type of or are they different? thing you're saying, like a currency. I'm not. I'm not. You can't I'm say. I'm not telling. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to say that both of these are fact and that pieces of eight is another type of currency as well okay it's like eight pieces of a dollar or whatever the dollar equivalent would be those are my thoughts so it's like a quarter but a quarter quarter yeah no a half quarter (laughs) yes i can math i feel like pieces of eight is like piece of eight of a ton of gold that's what i think it is i'm just gonna do that because i want to say something different from Mm. you but I also think pieces of eight are real. But maybe doubloons, I don't. It feels like it could be a made-up Disney thing. I'm just trying to be contrarian. I'm just going to play devil's advocate. <laughs> <laughs> I also would like to say, like, did either of you play on Neopets? Is that, like, totally out of your range of age? Uh, is that, like, a Tamagotchi? <laughs> no, it was, like, a website where you raise. It's, like, you raise pets. It sounds like a Tamagotchi, except on the internet. Yeah, like, similar, <laughs> similar, but it was online, and you raise these pets. But they also had, like, this, like, adventure mode where you, like, f- were looking for doubloons as, like, a pirate pet. I mean, doubloons is, like, a very... It's very tied to It's everywhere. It's everywhere in pirate culture. Like, but I'm not sure if it's, like you said, Lisa, I'm going to say it's true, but it could also be like, what's the one that like everything comes from? Disney. Treasure Island. Oh, yeah. Treasure Island. I'm like, I feel like it could also be something from Treasure Island. We just don't know what's real anymore. I know. Elise, you really have like completely defied our like laws of reality. So let's hear it. I need to know. All right. Ellie's actually a thousand percent right on all of her theories. Nailed it. (laughs) What a way to go into the year. Must be nice. All right. So tell me why I'm right. (laughs) Well, these are both coin based Spanish currencies that were really big from like the 1500s through the 1800s, so all of the like high pirates of the Caribbean time. A doubloon was a gold coin, $4 in Spanish money. It's worth like 400 today, just in the amount of gold that they used to mint these. Whoa! A piece of eight was a $1 silver coin that you could actually cut into eight pieces to make change. 
Oh my goodness, that would be such a different experience of right. I just remember being a cashier and like I'm just thinking about how to like give change like that. <laughs> <laughs> really, really strong knife. You just have to carry a knife with you every time you go to work. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Please. That's how it is. Well, I've got some more fun facts for you about doubloons and pieces of paint as I was researching this. So, okay, the reason it's such a big thing for pirates is because this was the currency and this was the Spanish economy. It was what they would use for their, they would ship this money, right? Like across the ocean into the Caribbean and then they'd ship back like silk and spices and they would trade with this money. So it was everywhere. And because of that, it was actually like the first worldwide currency by the late 18th century. It's like the, um, I don't know. Yeah. The, the first international currency you could cause it just be called just because of how uniform it was and, and how people were using it all over the world. That's super exciting. Very cool. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think so. There's also a theory that it's the origin on the back of a piece of eight. They had this thing that looked like a dollar sign. So there's some theories that that's where our dollar sign comes from, is that on the back of these pieces of eight, they look so much like that. Very, very cool. So also, because these doubloons are, what, $400 a piece? Yeah. How many doubloons would have to be in a thing of treasure? For you to be like, I just made a million dollars from this treasure. Let's see. Are you going to do math right now? So you would just need 2,500 doubloons. Okay, let's go find some. I feel like that Who's got a treasure makes map? sense. Like I, That could fit in a treasure. Yeah. In a treasure chest. People are still finding these sunken pirate ships. Like these underwater archaeologists are still finding sunken pirate ships. And they're fucking full of doubloons and pieces of eight. Like, wait, if you find them, do you get to, is it fine as keepers? I don't know. That's a good question. Because, like, if, if it's international waters, does that mean it's mm. yours? But if it's someone's water territory, does that mean it's theirs? I don't know. I mean, crazy. It kind of feels to me like find as keepers. Yeah. I think that's the pirate way of life. Or just don't tell anyone. To be fair, I feel like it probably is finders keepers. Like, I just don't think you would, like, spend that much money. I feel like there's probably a lot of private expeditions. I don't think you would, like, spend that much money to fund this expedition if you couldn't keep it. That's true. Or maybe they're, like, funded by museums or stuff like that. You guys, this is sounding a lot like Titanic when the guy's looking for the heart of the ocean. It's true. And the heart of the ocean, I'm pretty sure, was Finder's Keepers. I don't think he was, he was trying to sell that thing. Oh, yeah. What sucks is that his timing was so bad. Like, here he is out here. He's got his submarine and he's looking around and that bitch is in that lady's pocket the whole time. <laughs> Just when he's done looking Spoiler alert. in that exact spot, she drops that fucker in the ocean in that exact spot. <laughs> it's actually truthfully a bit of a dick move. Like, I guess I see where she's coming from, but like, come on, you're about to die. Like, just give the guy what he was. <laughs> she could have just given it to him, yeah. I remember I remember seeing the movie when I was 12 and thinking. Fuck you. You can sell that thing and give it all to the hungry <laughs> children of the world. What are you doing? What are you doing? It's worth like $10 million. Like you could fund hypothermia victims in honor of Jack's memory. Hypothermia victims in honor there, of Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot more she could have done with that than throw it into the ocean like does she think jack's gonna come and like pick it up also like you know what i mean like she literally thinks he's give she's giving it to him 
So then she can go die and think about all the orphans she's personally starving by throwing that money away. Seriously. It was, yeah. It's honestly the stupidest thing that old woman ever did. But actually, the first stupid thing she did was not let Jack up. There was room. There was room. There was room. They have literally done this on Mythbusters and there was room. Yes, there was room. Yes. That was a props. That was a props misfire. Big time. (laughs) I think the door problem is the aerial shot they did. The aerial shot made it so clear that she had extra room. (laughs) But I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I I have a funny story about Titanic, actually, because this tangent hasn't gone on long enough. It hasn't. A Titanic tangent is never long enough. Might I say, either is the movie. Continue. <laughs> yes, please. So early on in the pandemic, like when it was still March 2020, and we thought it was like kind of cute and interesting to be quarantined in our houses. <laughs> we arranged with some friends. We were like talking about Titanic. And we're like, we haven't seen it since middle school. Let's watch it tonight on Zoom. This new platform called Zoom. Let's drink <laughs> champagne and watch Titanic. And we thought it would be really funny and silly and adorable. And so we're watching it. And it is for the first half right before they hit the fucking iceberg before you put in the second tape yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then we put in the second tape and then we're all just watching it in horror like the zoom chat and the texts go silent because the pandemic's starting and it feels like we just globally hit an iceberg and we're all like sad drunk watching titanic <laughs> and that movie is really fucked up like they're like when the lady's putting the kids to bed before they die and she's singing them a song in irish and like it's such a sad movie. I don't think I can ever watch it again. It's too now that I have a kid. It's just too sad. Yeah, and yet we're still on the Titanic right now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, all of those horror things. Even like I watched um, Don't Look Up the other day, and that was written before the pandemic. Which like, <laughs> and it was supposed to be about climate change, but now with the pandemic, it's like even more so. You're like, oh, wow. oh yeah, <laughs> two on the nose. Yeah, because yeah. don't wear a mask is the equivalent of don't look up. Like, don't wear a mask. Exactly. Like, you won't die. And you're, like, laughing and you're, like, it's hilarious, but this is exactly what would happen. Yeah, it's, like, I was, like, this is a comedy, question mark? Like, this is not. <laughs> right, the Titanic equivalent is, just to extend the metaphor, is that the ship is literally, like, pointing up in the air sinking and everyone's, like, it's not sinking. It's not sinking. It's warm outside. I'm going to go for a swim. Then they jump off the edge and they're, like, it's Sounds about right. Not just your country, I feel like, should be made note of. It is many countries, but yes, America has a special kind of way of doing of it. Should we actually talk about what we came here to talk about? <laughs> and yet, <laughs> yes, we should. Let's talk yes. about Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. So before we jump in, Elise, can you just tell us, like, because they are two of the most famous women pirates. I know we're going to dig into it in the episode, but like, what do you know about Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed? What's your like general knowledge of them? I mean, before I started reading about them and interviewing them and interviewing experts for this podcast, I had never heard of them. You interviewed them? I, I interviewed Mary and Anne, yeah. <laughs> Dug them up. Yeah. So I. Seance? I, it was great. You know, me and the ghosts, we hung out. I took them to, I took them to my local lesbian bar. It was they would love that, honestly. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> I never knew. I never heard of them. I never heard of them in my life. And so it was really exciting to learn more about them for this. Yeah. I feel like for me, the only thing I knew was like, because there's a statue of them, right? 
And I feel like that's like iconic. That's our whole next episode, actually, is about yeah. the statue. So I think I knew about the statue because I'm gay. And I was like, oh, look at these two gay <laughs> women hanging out in the statue. This is cool. But we will talk about the speculation about their sexuality because it's not confirmed that the two of them were together. So, but we will discuss that in our next few episodes. I feel like historically, if there's speculation, they must be gay. Because, like, history be trying to quash that shit. It's a very gals being pals situation, but... Yeah, like roommates. We're going to let the experts speak, speak to that. Okay, well, thank you so much, Elise. I think it's time for us to take a break and gather ourselves. Yay. We'll be back soon. We are back. So as we said at the top of the episode today, despite some tangents, we are discussing the women pirates Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed and not Titanic. (laughs) Here's historian Ryan Burns on how these women became pirates. Anne Bonnie is born in Ireland and... From an early age, she was dressed by her father as a man, from the time that she was an infant. And this was done so that her father could hide his infidelity. So he, he had a, a daughter out of wedlock, and so he wanted to pretend that this child that was in his household is not his daughter, it's actually a male relative that is coming to stay with him. And Mary Reed is also, from an early age, dressed as a man. And in the depiction of her, this is done so as to actually receive money from her parents' grandmother. It's to more or less convince the grandmother that there is a a son that needs sustenance and needs to be taken care of, so money is sent. And then Mary Reed can also, as she gets older, go off and find employment in some way. And so... She actually joins a company of soldiers that is fighting on the continent. Uh, She marries a member of her own regiment, and the two of them open a tavern. But Mary Reed somehow gets on the ship of a man named Jack Rackham, or sometimes he's called Calico Jack. And Calico Jack takes an interest in port with Anne Bonny. Anne Bonny had a succession of relationships that fell apart, and so she goes to the Caribbean, she meets Jack Rackham, who brings him on board his ship, which violates the taboos of not having women on board. And Jack Rackham is able to get away with this potentially for two reasons. One, his ship is actually not a very large or very lucrative venture. So he's a pretty minor figure. And had Anne Bonny and Mary Reed not been on board, we probably wouldn't ever know much about him. He doesn't exactly plunder 400 ships like Bartholomew Roberts does. His reputation never really precedes him. So it's a small vessel with a small number of crew. And so he's able to kind of get away with it a bit more. There's also evidence that Calico Jack was not somebody to be crossed. So if a crew member brings a woman on board, well, that's taboo and can't happen if... This particular captain brings a woman on board and dares somebody to say something about it, then he's able to get away with it. So he brings Anne Bonny on board, and somehow Mary Reed also is a member of the crew dressed as a man. And Anne Bonny notices that Mary Reed is on board this vessel. She is able to recognize that there's a fellow woman on board, 
And in the description that is given to us in the general history of the pirates, Calico Jack finds out that there are two women, and not just one woman, on board his ship when he sees the two of them in what some scholars see as a compromising position. Jack Rackham believed that Mary Reed was in fact a man who was making moves on his consort, on Anne Bonny. And so he, he reaches to grab his dagger and his pistol to fight off this intruder who would dare do such a thing. And then in the general history of the pirates, Mary Reed is said to have then exposed her nature to him. And immediately when Jack Rackham sees that Mary Reed is in fact a woman and not a male crew member, he sees nothing out of the ordinary and then just lets the matter drop. Because in his mind, he can't conceive of a same-sex relationship between women on board the vessel. So he thinks, oh, well, this person clearly was not making any such moves. So remember when I said we would let the experts talk to you? <laughs> that didn't take long. <laughs> you can just listen to what the experts are saying here about this compromising position and make your own judgments on that. It just makes me think of that South Park episode. I don't know if you saw it. And they're like, how do women even? And like the whole episode is like, did they Oh my god, scissor? And like, it's like the whole episode. And when I hear that, I'm like, that's exactly what I think. That's exactly that. Yeah, it's exactly that. Like what what even happens? Which we've, I think we've covered that before in the past in this podcast or just life maybe. Yes. And also, I mean, with our Sappho season as well, where it's like, yeah, oh, yes, women laying on a bed together. Totally platonic. They definitely were just sleeping. Of course. Like, taking a nap. Definitely. Yeah. On the breast of her tender companion, just having a nap. Exactly. Exactly. Did you read the Song of the Lioness when you were younger? No. It's like a book series by Tamora Pierce, and it was all about a girl who dresses up as a boy. And that just made me think of that. Yeah. And it was like similar but different. It was because her brother like really liked doing sewing and stuff, and she wanted to be a knight. And so like... It's like a whole four book series about her pretending to be her brother. So I have a special place in my heart for like young girls who dress up as boys <laughs> because of this lovely book series that I read. Yes. At least like for me growing up that like tomboy, like I was always considered a tomboy. Mm -hmm. Like when I was younger, because I did not like to wear a dress. And then I'm like, oh, well, I just am gay. <laughs> so <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> Yes, but I'm excited to learn more about Anna Mary. Yes, here's pirate historian, our friend, Rebecca Simon, with a little bit more about Anne and Mary's backstories. So they're interesting figures because the only thing we know about their early lives come from a general history of the pirates. That's the only source that tells us about their life before they became pirates in 1720. So we don't know how much of it is fact versus fiction. Now, according to the general history of the pirates, Anne Bonny was born in Ireland. She was a bastard daughter of a lawyer and his maid, born out of scandal, and he ends up leaving his wife, takes the maid and Anne, and they sail to the Carolinas to kind of start over. Anne's mother dies while she's quite young, and Anne is raised essentially by a single father. And she is known to kind of go down to the docks and sort of flirt with sailors. And then the story goes that she runs away with a young sailor named James Bonney, who promises a life of adventure. He's thinking he'll get a great dowry from her wealthy father, but she's disowned. She, he doesn't get the dowry, so it's not a good marriage. They make it to Nassau, where she meets another pirate named Jack Rackham, 
she falls in love with Jack Rackham because at this point she had fallen out of love with James Bonney because he had actually decided to become employed as a pirate hunter by the governor of the Bahamas, Woods Rogers, at this time in 1720. And so she essentially leaves him and she goes to try to marry Jack Rackham. And this is where we do start getting some historical records about her. You know, Jack Rackham and Anne Bonney attempted to have her sold to Jack Rackham. Wife selling was common, but James Bonney refused to do this. And so they kind of steal away. And this is how she becomes a pirate. According to a general history of the pirates, Mary Reed was also a bastard daughter born to a widowed woman who had a brief affair with a sailor. And Mary Reed was raised as a boy to be disguised as her deceased infant brother from her mother's legitimate marriage so she could still get an allowance from her in-laws. So Mary, according to general history of the pirates, did not even know she was a girl until she was essentially about 12 or 13 years old according to this, until after the in-laws died and she stopped getting the allowance. Mary had to go into domestic service. This doesn't work out. She escapes. She joins a Navy ship and possibly fights in the War of Spanish Succession and then leaves. And then she joins the British Army in Flanders. She reveals herself to a young soldier and marries him. And in a general history of the pirates, she's well accepted. They're really excited for them. But then he dies. She rejoins the army. But through her grief, she kind of doesn't perform as well as a soldier. And so she leaves, joins up on either either another merchant or another pirate ship. But either way, she winds up in Nassau looking for work as a pirate. The whole time she's disguised as a man. And then she meets with Anne Bonny and Jack Rackham. She is put onto their crew still disguised as a man. And, you know, there have been studies about transvesticism on ships and in the army and what it was like during that time period. The idea of a woman kind of dressing as a man kind of freaked men out. It was kind of funny. It freaked them out because they were like, who are these women trying to steal our masculinity? But at the same time, they just weren't taken seriously. It was like, oh, well, they're women, so it doesn't matter. What they do doesn't matter. Let them do what they want. And if they, if men perhaps caught their wives in some sort of romantic relationship with another woman, they would let it go because, you know, she wasn't cuckolding him with another man. Kind of like some people say like, oh, well, it's just, you know, no, there's no penis involved. It can't be sex, you know, kind of similar attitude back then. Can you imagine, look, you're a tomboy. I grew up with all guys, so I was kind of a tomboy too. But can you imagine just like until 12 or 13 is raised as a boy and then just like, oh, psych. (laughs) Yes. You're a woman. Like when you just start growing boobs and you're like, oh, shit. (laughs) I mean, I guess so. (laughs) I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know how she figured out that she was i mean you are naked with people when you're a child like in parts of your life no like yes but also i'm like coming from a coming from a conservative catholic background i also feel like they probably just like didn't talk about body parts like she didn't realize that like whatever her body parts were were like traditionally a woman right like i'm gonna tell this like ridiculous story about my childhood (laughs) just because it's funny please but like so i am one of three myself, my sister, and then my brother. My brother's three years younger. So I lived just like me and my sister for a while. And then we had a brother. Okay. And my mom decided the time for us to stop taking baths together was when my sister asked me, what's that in between Joe's legs? And I said to her, oh, don't worry. We both had those two, but his will fall off. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know. Also, that is so you like you're just like I actually don't know the answer but I am going to pretend that I know exactly like 
Like, very matter of fact. Um, We had them too. They're gone now. Yeah, exactly. And his will, his will fall off. Don't worry. Like, oh my God. <laughs> but it's, I also love that because, like, without even realizing it, you are really, like, subverting, like, Freud. Because, like, Freud's whole thing is, like, women just want penises. Like, because, you know, he's a man and that's how he thinks. And so, like, I love that, like, young Ellie was, like, really turning Freud on his head being, like, no. It's will fall off. Oh, yeah. I was like, my brother, like, really needs to lose it so he yeah. can be more like us. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. But so I just feel like who knows what was taught? <laughs> who knows? Who knows, what she, who knows what she thought or she knew? I think Anne and Mary are very interesting because Mary was raised as a as a boy until she was 12 or 13. Right. So we're talking like, OK, are they gay? But also like was Mary a trans man and just, like, didn't know the terms for that. Like, there's some really interesting play on gender, no matter what, in Mary's upbringing. Yeah, I don't want to speak on it because it's not my experience, but I think it's interesting difference that it was, like, obviously an external thing that was, like, on her instead of something that was, like, a self-identifier as far as we can tell. But it's definitely, yeah, a very interesting question. I mean, either way, like, the two of them played with gender in such an interesting way and, like, really, like, took on some cool things like jumping on pirate ships with men and, like, being their equals. So Rebecca's going to tell us a little bit more about what they were like as pirates. Historical documents show that Woods Rogers issued a proclamation specifically to capture Jack Rackham and Bonnie, using that name, because she was known to be his wife, and the other female pirate, Mary Reed, which means it was likely known that there were two women on board the ship when they set off in August of 1720. They were known to be women when they fought and captured ships. They were known to, their hair. they would wear men's clothes, their long hair flying behind them, and they would have their shirts open, bearing their breasts to really kind of freak out and intimidate their victims. And this is very much how they are identified. They're very fascinating. And they're the ones that kind of break this mold, you know, women who are known to be pirates, you know, allowing themselves to be known and seen, you know, shocking their victims. Oh my God, it's women who are swearing and cursing and brandishing weapons and being deadlier than any of the men on the ship. You know, they sometimes would lead the charge when they captured a woman named Dorothy Thomas, who ended up being a key witness at the trial. Jack Rackham decided to let her go and Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed were like, no, she'll, she'll, she'll give us up. If you do, you got to kill her. They were after that. Whereas Jack Rackham was like, no, let's spare her life. And sure enough, Dorothy Thomas ended up being a key witness in the trial. And when they were captured, Jack Rackham and all the crew, they had a big success with a ship, stealing lots of wine. They party, they get very, very drunk. Well, that night they don't know they're being tracked by a pirate hunter named Jonathan Barnett. And they're captured. Jack Rackham kind of starts a fight against them, but is, realizes that they can't win. And so he orders everyone to go hide below deck. And Bonnie and Mary Reed stay up on deck, try to order the others to fight, but they won't. And so it's just the two of them fighting until they're captured. The urge I had to bear my breasts. <laughs> a fear tactic. My boobs are huge. I'm, I'd like to now think of them as a weapon. Terrifying, honestly. <laughs> it's very intimidating to victims but <laughs> Anne and Mary in general are just so interesting in terms of gender roles because I also feel like this is just like the urge like in the workplace 
for women to just like overcompensate, right? You're like, because I'm a woman, (laughs) I'm going to be underestimated. Therefore, like, oh, no, I'm going to kill more people than you. (laughs) Like, I'm going to be an even scarier pirate than all of the men. And look at my boobs. Yeah. And I'm going to do it with my hair flowing and tits out. Do you know what? Actually, I do that because <laughs> the, the what I just said you do or I don't bend my breasts, <laughs> but I will say so I'm very curvy and like it's been an issue for me. So I used to be in a lot of like tech startup spaces and I would see a lot of women who would like blend into that space who are like much more up and down body types who could like blend and they would wear like very like masculine type clothes. But like you really can't get around my curves like it's really difficult to do. And so I just went in on it and like so I'm what like five, eight. I would put on heels so I would be like six foot tall and I would wear like whatever the fuck, just clothes that fit me because I can't escape these curves. And I would just be like, fuck all of you. I'm, I am taller than you and I'm going to stand above you and I'm going to be like curvy and womanly because like regardless of whatever I do, you're going to treat me as an other anyway and you're going to do that anyway. So I am channeling Anne and Mary as it turns out. And you didn't even know. Didn't even realize. But that was like something that I very unconsciously did because I'm like, you know, one of five women in this whole room of men. How am I going to deal with this? You just got to double down. We also talked to Christopher John Farley, a.k.a. CJ, an author who wrote an amazing book about Anne and Mary. More on that later. Here he is with some thoughts on what badasses these two women were. And Bonnie, I'm going to paraphrase a quote. The last thing she told Calico Jack Rackham, the commander of her ship, is that if you'd fought like a man, you would have been hung like a dog. And uh, that, that's tough. That's some tough love going on there. And that's the kind of character she was. I mean, the reports at the time said that Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, they were the two toughest fighters a- a- aboard their pirate ship. At one point, there was a report that Mary Reed had something going on with someone else on the ship. That person got involved in a duel. And Mary Reed, who knew that she was a tougher fighter than anyone on the ship, decided to schedule her duel two hours earlier with this guy so she could take him out first. And that's the kind of stuff that she did. I mean, that's, if that's not swashbuckling, I don't know what it is. When you step in and say, you want to duel? I'm going to step in two hours earlier, take this guy out, because I know that you're not up for it. That's the kind of lies that Mary Reed and Anne Bonny led, lies full of duels, full of trials, full of fighting, full of criminality. It was an adventurous life. It wasn't a sedate life. And that's part of what pulled them away from land, pulled them away from London and County Cork to, this, to this, this, this life of crime. They were bigger-than-life characters. They excited the imaginations back when they were living, and they still excited our imaginations years after, centuries after their passing. And historians that don't want to own up history being fun, they're just wrong. You know, my mom was a historian, and she always showed me that history was fun. And so the history of these two women is also really, really a fun history, too. It's not boring. I remember when I got the actual proceedings of their trial, I read through it. You know, most legal proceedings are pretty dull work. This was crazy fun stuff. People talking about the way these women were acting and the way they were fighting and people being afraid of them and people being sentenced to death and people pleading their bellies and revealing they're suddenly pregnant. Lots of twists and turns. But there's a lot in there about race and class and gender. It's also just a great adventure story that during this time, again, a time where women couldn't vote, couldn't own things, couldn't inherit stuff, that they came along and said, you know what, we're going to be the 
the fiercest pirates that are out there. We're going to fight harder than any of the men aboard our ship. So hard that when I reviewed the um, actual proceedings of the trial, there are all these moments where other pirates testify that, yeah, these, these two, they were the toughest ones out there. They were the hardest fighters. And what's also interesting is there's some suggestion that, yes, they did cross-dress, but they were also seen on the ship dressed as women. And that also suggested to me they were so confident about themselves that they could appear however they wanted. They could cross-dress when they wanted. They could dress conventionally when they wanted. But they could do what they wanted aboard that ship. They'd finally sort of found their own bit of sort of identity paradise during this very horrible blood-soaked century. So I think they're impressive figures. Yes, they were criminals, but like Bonnie and Clyde, like all these other outlaws we embrace, these are outlaws who certain aspects of them we can embrace because I think that they send a very positive message about really claiming yourselves. How common were women on pirate ships at this time? Here's Ryan again with some context. There's a kind of wide range of very interesting both examples of female pirates uh, in the Golden Age, as well as all kinds of interesting tidbits that we can only glance at at gender relations in port and things like this. So far from home, many port towns in the Caribbean in the 17th century actually afforded better opportunities for women than places in England or in France or elsewhere in Europe. So there are plenty of examples of women who own taverns, who own brothels, who invest in pirate ventures or in other kind of more legitimate mercantile enterprises. And the relationship between pirates and women is also kind of very complex in many ways because women were seen as bad luck on ships in the 17th and 18th century. The presence of women was seen as basically casting an ill omen. And in the pirate codes that come down to us, say the articles on Bartholomew Roberts's ship that every crew member had to sign, there's a specific line that there are no women nor boys that are allowed to be on the ship at any time. And that any member of the crew who would dare bring someone on board that fit that description was to be marooned. And so you have a situation where women are simply banned. And because of that, women captives usually weren't taken. Typically, if a, a pirate ship, contrary to much Hollywood legend, if a pirate ship overtakes a merchant vessel and there are women on board, they're never taken as prisoners. That's very, very rare. But there are also examples of women pirates. Anne Bonny and Mary Reed are, are the most famous. And the two of them are actually emphasized in the book, The General History of the Pirates, as examples of the danger that piracy in general poses to the social order. So in the first copies that are published of The General History of the Pirates, it begins with you know, General History of the Pirates being the tales of and then in bold, large letters, Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed. And then all the other captains are kind of printed in much smaller print toward the bottom of the, of the title page. And so there's a kind of sense of wonder and fascination at their life stories that I spend an entire class period in 
my Golden Age of Pirate class kind of discussing because they're such interesting characters. And unlike so many of the other depictions of pirates in the general history of the pirates, Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed's backstories, the descriptions of where they actually came from and their early lives are included. And we know nothing about Blackbeard before he becomes a pirate, but Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed's origins are laid out in hopefully reliable detail, although we don't necessarily know. However, women pirates were probably more common than the historical record shows, considering how history consistently erases women. And one of the other historians we spoke with, Clint Jones, told us that if the Golden Age would have gone on much longer, female pirates probably would have been more widespread, and Anne Bonnie might have even had her own crew, which would be dope. So what happened to them? Here's Rebecca again. They're put on trial. They're sentenced to death by execution in Jamaica. They only act as pirates for about two months. They're captured in like the end of October, early November of 1720 after setting out in August. And they're put on trial in Jamaica because they've been captured off the coast of Jamaica. And they're at St. Jago de la Vega, which is modern day Spanish town where the courthouse was in Jamaica. Big twist. Um, and this is all in the trial documents. So this is all legitimate documents here. Big twist. They're both pregnant. If they're both pregnant. So as per standard rule of the day, if a woman was found pregnant when she'd been sentenced to death, they give a stay of execution, meaning they will delay it until after the birth of child. And most of the time, they honestly just wouldn't even bother with the execution in the end anyways. Now, we don't quite know what happened to them. It's a little bit of a mystery, but we do know that Mary Reed does die in prison because of death records that show up and the jail is in St. Catherine's Parish. It shows her death in 1721. So likely she probably died of what they call jail fever, which was typhus, possibly complications with pregnancy or childbirth or all the above. And Bonnie, we actually don't know. There's no record of her actually being executed. There's a few theories. The longest standing theory was that it was likely perhaps her father paid her ransom and she went back home to Carolina, remarried, raised a family, lived till she was about 80. But recently, a YouTuber, I forget his name, did find documents from St. Catherine's Parish listing an Anne Bonnie having died in the early, around 1732. So it's possible she may have just lived out the rest of her life in Jamaica. This just makes me think of Roxy Hart. Because it's like Roxy Hart or like Hunger Games. It's like such a trope now of women being like, if not for the baby. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think it seems like they both were actually pregnant, but it is like, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, I think this was true, but it is like also a, a nice excuse to not get killed, you know? So that's great. <laughs> I also love that we like don't really know when Anne died or how. I love it. It is cool that even now, in the same way that we keep learning about more things about history, someone did find documents of her death. But I also like this idea of like Anne just escaping and like living mm -hmm. her life however she wanted to because she's like, well, I guess I'm done being a pirate, but I still have all these, these doubloons. Shout out to the beginning of the episode. And <laughs> I'm just going to live how I want to live. I mean, I love that for her. And I really, one thing I really rue like about like modern society is it's so hard to just disappear and be a new person. It's like so many ways to trace you now. I know, but Anne just flew off into the sunset. Disappeared into the night. Lucky yeah. her. <laughs> we said earlier in the episode we were going to talk a little bit about CJ's book. So I want to talk about CJ's book, Kingston by Starlight 
which is a biographical fiction novel published by Three Rivers Press in 2005 about Anne and Mary, and he's going to tell us a bit more about it. It's a story that I heard as a kid. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. And so I heard all sorts of stories growing up about, you know, duppies, which are kind of Jamaican ghosts, and rolling calves, which are a kind of a flaming cow, and all sorts of crazy stories, including the stories of these two female pirates. And when I got a little bit older, when I began to be a writer, and I, I'm a former editor of the at Time Magazine, a former senior editor at the Wall Street Journal, and I've written a number of books. I thought, this is a story I need to look into. And to my amazement, it turned out to be true. And I went sort of on a worldwide investigative quest to really get to the bottom of what this whole tale was about, who these women really were, getting the actual trial proceedings from London of what happened, of course, reading the famous book by Captain Johnson, who may, have, may or may not have been Daniel Defoe, about their lies, and then making a lot of stuff up, because that's what novelists do. But I wanted to sort of base it on reality and really find out from the historical record, what do we know about these two women and what they did, and then write a novel about it. So how did he approach writing a story? Well, you know, whenever a, a dude decides to write about a woman and with a woman's voice, you know, you have to do it with some trepidation because you have to think to yourself, is this something I really should be doing? Can I do it? Is this voice gonna be authentic? Because we all know lots of books where people try to adopt the voices of people who are outside of their experiences, and it's pure garbage. And William Styron, of course, wrote The Confessions of Nat Turner. William Styron was a white Southern writer. Nat Turner was a black slave revolutionary. And in William Styron's telling, Nat Turner did it all for the love of a white woman. So the book was a joke. People hated it. It won the Pulitzer Prize from the white establishment at the time. And it was much praised by mainstream critics, but people who knew black authors were like, this isn't us. What's up with this? And so I didn't want to put myself in the camp. I thought, I thought the best way for me to do this is to really immerse myself in research. and really read a lot of books and diaries and newspaper articles from the period to really get an um, authentic understanding of what the point of the language was, the position of women and people of color at the time. Many of the books that I write in the end almost, almost end up killing me. This one also just sort of almost pushed me over the edge. I went to County Cork, I went to London, I went to over Jamaica, really researching this book. And I remember at one point I was you know, on a beach near Port Royal by myself late at night, and I thought I could hear Anne Bonny's voice in my head. And I'm like, okay, I think, I think, I think I've pushed it too far. I think this is, this is about as far as I should, I should go. I don't want to put myself completely over the edge here. And that's really when I sort of heard her voice in my head is when I thought, okay, now I can begin writing this because I can't, I can't really author this like a normal book. I really have to make sure it's, it feels like it's being channeled, that her voice is in my head and I'm just sort of taking dictation. And that's really the way it went for this book. I felt like I was just taking dictation from Anne Bonny in my head. I went all the way to the end. And once it was done, I kind of, it's weird, a lot of the information I had in my head over the years researching just kind of just passed away from me in the names of places and the dates and the people, because it was too much for, for me to hold in my head, except when I was sort of writing and channeling it and on the beach in Jamaica. You know, past that, I just had to go back to being myself. You know, the first part of the book is really kind of fragmentary. 
And that's really what I heard her say to me when I was walking along the beach in Jamaica. And I just was just a scribe. I just took it down and sort of went from there. It really is a story of transformation, people going beyond the cultural and gender and racial assignments that society has given to them. In the end, it's not so much transformation as realization, where you suddenly realize, no, this is who I am. It's not a choice. It's not a lifestyle. It's who you are, and you embrace that. And there's something beautiful and heroic about that, whether you're crossing lines of race or crossing lines of gender or crossing lines of class, all of which is done in this book. And I felt like, okay, by me writing this book, I'm also crossing certain lines to do that. And I felt like that was in the tradition of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, who, you know, crossed lines all their lives. I felt like if they could do it, maybe they're sending me a signal that I can do it too with this book. I need to read this book immediately. I also want to go to a beach now and just like sit in the waves and wait for Anne to speak to me as well. I want to hear her voice. Yes. Should we plan a trip to Jamaica? Yes. Okay. Once I am allowed to leave the country, let's go. Yeah. To be fair, that's actually not a bad idea. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Reason for a visit. Channeling and Bonnie. Sorry. Continue. In his decisions about how to portray Anne, CJ responded to a pattern that we know quite well by now on our show, the erasure of women and people of color from history. Well, one thing that I found interesting is the way in which history hides us from ourselves. Very often, when women or Black people accomplish something, our identities are erased or ignored or it's attributed to somebody else. For example, there was a pirate named Lawrence de Graaf, who was a Dutch pirate. He was around really sort of first in the century before the Anne Bonny and Mary Reed story. Most people at the time called him white because, they did, because he was such a successful pirate, people didn't want to alarm people and say that he was mulatto or black, which he was. And so I find it very interesting that the identities of pirates, if they're successful, can be erased. And so when I began to find little bits and pieces of Anne Bonnie's story that suggested to me that she could be someone who was of color, I thought that was interesting because that went against the historical record the way people assumed that she must be a white woman because she was from England and because of her status. I thought, okay, this might be, might be a white woman. But the historical record shows that her hair was wild. It was likely red, that she came from a very indeterminate kind of family background where her parents could have been a servant and she could have been illegitimate, that we know that there was some traffic between Moorish pirates and the area of County Cork that she had roots in. And all those things suggested to me that it wouldn't be out of balance and novelist to say, you know what, a reason that could have driven her to sea could have been the fact that she actually had this mixed race heritage. And so I put that in the book as well. My mother, Dr. Ina Farley, is a professor of African-American history. She's retired now, but she's a professor of history for the longest time at the State University of New York at Brockport. She was chairman of the department. And you know, she assumed that role back in the 70s and 80s when there weren't a whole lot of black women running history departments. And there weren't a whole lot of people even studying black history. 
And I saw how time and time again, with her differing sensibilities, her different take on the subject, her increased level of skepticism, things that were assumed to be a certain way by the mostly white male historical community didn't turn out to be that way when you had a black woman professor looking at things. Things were often different. And so it's really important, I think, to sort of adapt that kind of radical skepticism of history because of who's written by and why they're writing it and the way in which the way they tell these stories can imprison us in their narrative. And I found that was true with Anne Bonny and Mary Reed in terms of people assuming why they did things, who they're with, who they may or may not have loved. When I went into it with sort of more radical skepticism and sort of followed what made sense, the story was quite different and became the story that I had in Kingston by Starlight, where it wasn't the story of two women serving under this male pirate captain. It really was a story of, uh, of these two people finding their identity. But the men around them were actually kind of superfluous to this voyage of identity they were going on. So while we have movies like Pirates of the Caribbean, which sort of place at the very beginning at least, white men at the center of the pirate narrative, the truth is quite different, where some of these pirates were women. Many of them were people of color. A lot of them were not just about simple criminality, but really were out there trying to establish some sort of new identity. And that comes when you sort of look at history from a different light. Wow, this is such an amazing take. It also like could very much be accurate. Yeah. We don't know Anne's family background. So to just assume that she's white is like not really also accurate. But Ellie, everybody from history is obviously white. <laughs> obviously. I do love that take. And I think it's like a very valid one. Absolutely. So CJ also purposefully highlighted in the book the gender fluidity of the two pirates, which he's going to talk about now. You know, I didn't want to conform to the trope where, you know, just a dude writing about women getting it on and make it into some sort of erotic adventure. I mean, there are moments of eroticism in this book. It is at its heart a love story between these two women, but it's about much more than that. And it's about these two people really finding their identities with each other. I, I love Ursula K. Le Guin, and I love her book, The Left Hand of Darkness. And if people know the book, it's about this planet where these aliens don't have a fixed gender. They're both men and women, and at certain times they go into heat and they become one or the other, depending on the circumstance. But one of the lead characters who is an alien, Ursula Kayla Gwynn, because of the language of the time when it was written, she continually refers to the character as he. And because of the character's status, because of the character's position in the novel, and to me that never made any sense because the character was a them or some other pronoun, but he wouldn't capture it unless you're conforming to you know, the, the male patriarchy of literature. So I didn't want to fall into that with this book. So throughout the book, Except at one key moment, Mary Reed is referred to as him or he or with that pronoun. And the names throughout the book, the three parts of the book, are constantly changed. You know, Anne is referred to Bon, as Bon or Anne throughout the book, just to sort of show the fluidity of, of language, the way in which names change, the way in which we claim ourselves over time. 
It may make that a little bit confusing for some readers, but I thought it was the most authentic way to get through and to communicate the kind of journey these two people were on the ship. And so I, I wanted to make sure that that came across, uh, that these characters were embracing an identity that they always use within them and not to sort of assign them an easy identity because it's an, it will make it an easier read for people who are picking up the book. I need to hear this book. So can we hear any of it? Yes, we asked CJ to read an excerpt to us and he, he is reading from the end. And Bonnie, the main character in the book, is sort of reflecting on her adventures after the end of her trial. Whisper to the flashing water your real name. Write your signature in the sand and shout your identity to the sky until the answer returns to you in thunder. The whole world conspires to tell us who we are. Every nation assaults us with amnesia. And so we must do those things that will never be forgotten if we are to preserve our souls. Did I do wrong? Yes. But though blood stains, it fades and sometimes washes off. Could I have chosen another path than the one I took? Ah, but as a mariner, I've learned over these long years to take whatever wind blows and then bend it to one's will. By my faith, you steer by the stars. They do not steer us. The end comes to all of us, whether we be governors or sailors, harlots or craftsmen, scoundrels or monks. But the end comes quicker to those who do not live their lives as they choose. If your life is not your own, then in what way is it living? Wow. I know. It's just, it doesn't disappoint. Nope. Okay, so I was really excited about this episode because obviously Anne and Mary are just like iconic, but like, wow, I had no idea it would be this interesting and this much. And I just, I'm excited to hear about the statues next week. I'm excited for the rest of the season, but like, oh my God. I know. What an incredible story. I have to go read all of these books now. I love both of them so much. But in the meantime, here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter. And it's not just about being pirates, it's all the rest of it. Like, women play football, women can be electricians, women can be whatever they want to be. Like, why is these things lost? And if we'd known that Mary and Anne existed years ago, would we still be on the same path? I don't know. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our next episode will be released on Thursday, the 27th of January which is only a week from now. So exciting. Exciting. (laughs) If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review us. It really helps, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sweetbitter. Thank you to our new Patreon supporter for the whole year, Ahmed, who signed up at the Ching Shi Cheer. Thank you so much. And please look out for a personalized poem from Elise in the mail. Oh, I'm so jealous. What a great surprise to get Mm -hmm. a poem from Elise in the mail. Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Snore, and Lisa Charlotte in partnership with Three Springs Media. Our audio engineering is by Sarah Gabrielli. Our production assistant is Thea Smith, and our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Thank you to our guests this week, Ryan Burns, Rebecca Simon, and CJ Farley. 
You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com. Also, one more fun thing to add before we go. I am revamping our merch store, which has been out of action. We have some t-shirts and totes, oh my, on TeePublic. And we will have the plectrums and the nail clippers on our website soon, along with maybe some Sappho Poem fridge magnets. So look out for that. So exciting. Mm-hmm. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, our sea shanty for this week, written and performed by Elise with production by Joshua. True love on the high seas To us is bound by piracy They dressed as men and joined a crew Set sailing out for gold Not knowing that their story'd be The greatest ever told Each recognized a fellow made While the men knew not They fell in love with other names and never were caught Until the day that Captain Wreck found them in the same bed And that was when he first learned that two girls can have sex True love on the high seas Two lasses bound by piracy struck fear in all their prey they'd bear their chests to send a threat and leap to join the fray the fiercest of the whole crew they fought until the end while the men as scared as dogs just cowered below decks they pled their bellies back on land and managed to skirt the noose then they were never seen again they never were subdued True love on the high seas, to lasses bound by piracy.